Section 20 of The Prussian Officer and Other Stories. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Prussian Officer and Other Stories by D. H. Lawrence. A Sick Collier. She was too good for him, everybody said. Yet still she did not regret marrying him. He had come courting her when he was only nineteen and she twenty. He was in build what they call a tight little fellow, short, dark, with a warm colour and that upright set of the head and chest, that flaunting way in movement recalling a mating bird, which denotes a body taut and compact with life. Being a good worker, he had earned decent money in the mine, and having a good home had saved a little. She was a cook at Uplands, a tall, fair girl, very quiet. Having seen her walk down the street, Horsepool had followed her from a distance. He was taken with her, he did not drink, and he was not lazy. So, although he seemed a bit simple, without much intelligence, but having a sort of physical brightness, she considered and accepted him. When they were married, they went to live in Scargill Street, in a highly respectable six-roomed house which they had furnished between them. The street was built up the side of a long, steep hill. It was narrow and rather tunnel-like. Nevertheless, the back looked out over the adjoining pasture, across a wide valley of fields and woods in the bottom of which the mine lay snugly. He made himself gaffer in his own house. She was unacquainted with a collier's mode of life. They were married on a Saturday. On the Sunday night, he said, "'Set the table for my breakfast, and put my pit-things afront of the fire. I shall be getting up at half-past five. They needn't a shift the senate not till ter likes.' He showed her how to put a newspaper on the table for a cloth. When she demurred, "'I want none of your white cloths in the morning. I like to be able to slobber if I like it,' he said. He put before the fire his moleskin trousers, a clean singlet or sleeveless vest of thick flannel, a pair of stockings and his pit-boots, arranging them all to be warm and ready for morning. "'Now the seas. That wants doing every night.' Punctually at half-past five he left her, without any form of leave-taking, going downstairs in his shirt." When he arrived home at four o'clock in the afternoon, his dinner was ready to be dished up. She was startled when he came in, a short, sturdy figure, with a face indescribably black and streaked. She stood before the fire in her white blouse and white apron, a fair girl, the picture of beautiful cleanliness. He clummoxed in, in his heavy boots. "'Well, how is there gone on?' he asked. "'I was ready for you to come home,' she replied tenderly. In his black face the whites of his brown eyes flashed at her. "'And I were ready for comin', he said. He planked his tin bottle and snap-bag on the dresser, took off his coat and scarf and waistcoat, dragged his armchair nearer the fire, and sat down. "'Let's have a bit of dinner, then. I'm about clammed,' he said. "'Aren't you going to wash yourself first? "'What am I to wash myself for?' "'Well, you can't eat your dinner. "'Oh, strike a daisy, missus. "'Don't eat my snap in the pit without washin'. "'Forced to.' She served the dinner and sat opposite him. His small bullet-head was quite black, save for the whites of his eyes and his scarlet lips. It gave her a queer sensation to see him open his red mouth and bare his white teeth as he ate. His arms and hands were mottled black. His bare, strong neck got a little fairer as it settled towards his shoulders, reassuring her. There was the faint, indescribable odour of the pit in the room, an odour of damp, exhausted air. "'Why is your vest so black on the shoulders?' she asked. "'A singlet?' "'That's with water dropping on us from that roof. "'This is a dryin' I put on afore I come up. "'They have great clothes horses, "'and as we change us things we put them on there to dry.' "'When he washed himself, kneeling on the hearth-rug stripped to the waist, "'she felt afraid of him again. "'He was so muscular. "'He seemed so intent on what he was doing, "'so intensely himself, like a vigorous animal. 
and as he stood wiping himself with his naked breast towards her, she felt rather sick, seeing his thick arms bulge their muscles. They were nevertheless very happy. He was at a great pitch of pride because of her. The men in the pit might chaff him, they might try to entice him away, but nothing could reduce his self-assured pride because of her, nothing could unsettle his almost infantile satisfaction. In the evening he sat in his armchair chattering to her, or listening as she read the newspaper to him. When it was fine he would go into the street, squat on his heels as colliers do, with his back against the wall of his parlour, and call to the passers-by in greeting, one after another. If no one were passing, he was content just to squat and smoke, having such a fund of sufficiency and satisfaction in his heart. He was well married. They had not been wed a year when all Brent and Wellwood's men came out on strike. Willie was in the union, so with a pinch they scrambled through. The furniture was not all paid for, and other debts were incurred. She worried and contrived. He left it to her. But he was a good husband. He gave her all he had. The men were out fifteen weeks. They had been back just over a year when Willie had an accident in the mine, tearing his bladder. At the pithead the doctor talked of the hospital. Losing his head entirely, the young collier raved like a madman, what with pain and fear of hospital. "'Thou shalt go home, Willie. Thou shalt go home,' the deputy said. A lad warned the wife to have the bed ready. Without speaking or hesitating, she prepared. But when the ambulance came and she heard him shout with pain at being moved, she was afraid lest she should sink down. They carried him in. "'You should have had a bed in that parley, missus,' said the deputy. "'Then we shouldn't have had to hawks him upstairs, and it would have saved your legs.' But it was too late now. They got him upstairs." "'They let me lie, Lucy,' he was crying. "'They let me lie two mortal hours on the slack "'afore they took me out of the stall. "'The pain, Lucy, the pain, oh, Lucy, the pain, the pain.' "'I know the pain's bad, Willie, I know, "'but you must try and bear it a bit.' "'The man a carry on in that form, lad, "'the missus'll never be able to stand it,' said the deputy. "'I canna help it. It's the pain, it's the pain.' "'He cried again. He had never been ill in his life. When he had smashed a finger, he could look at the wound. But this pain came from inside and terrified him. At last he was soothed and exhausted. It was some time before she could undress him and wash him. He would let no other woman do for him, having that savage modesty usual in such men. For six weeks he was in bed, suffering much pain. The doctors were not quite sure what was the matter with him, and scarcely knew what to do. He could eat, he did not lose flesh nor strength, yet the pain continued, and he could hardly walk at all. In the sixth week the men came out in the national strike. He would get up quite early in the morning and sit by the window. On Wednesday, the second week of the strike, he sat gazing out on the street as usual, a bullet-headed young man, still vigorous-looking, but with a peculiar expression of hunted fear in his face. "'Lucy!' he called. "'Lucy!' She, pale and worn, ran upstairs at his bidding. "'Give me young kitcher,' he said. "'Why, you've got one,' she replied, coming near. "'The needna touch me,' he cried. Feeling his pocket, he produced a white handkerchief. "'I no want a white, and give me a redden,' he said. "'And if anybody comes to see you,' she answered, giving him a red handkerchief. "'Besides,' she continued, "'you needn't have brought me upstairs for that.' "'I believe the pain's coming on again,' he said, with a little horror in his voice. "'It isn't, you know, it isn't,' she replied. "'The doctor says you imagine it's there when it isn't.' "'Can I feel what's inside me?' he shouted. "'There's a traction engine coming downhill,' she said. "'That'll scatter them. I'll just go and finish your pudding.' She left him. The traction engine went by, shaking the houses. Then the street was quiet, save for the men. 
a gang of youths from fifteen to twenty-five years old were playing marbles in the middle of the road other little groups of men were playing on the pavement the street was gloomy willie could hear the endless calling and shouting of men's voices thou'rt skinchin i arna come here with that blood alley swap us four for it shun a gisole in it he wanted to be out he wanted to be playing marbles the pain had weakened his mind so that he hardly knew any self-control presently another gang of men lounged up the street it was pay morning the union was paying the men in the primitive chapel they were returning with their half-sovereigns sorry bawled a voice sorry the word is a form of address corruption probably of sirrah willie started almost out of his chair sorry again bawled a great voice art going with me to see knott's play villa many of the marble players started up what time is it there's no trains we shall have to walk the street was alive with men who's going to nottingham to see the match shouted the same big voice a very large tipsy man with his cap over his eyes was calling come on ay come on came many voices the street was full of the shouting of men they split up in excited cliques and groups play up knots the big man shouted play up knots shouted the youths and men they were at kindling pitch it only needed a shout to rouse them of this the careful authorities were aware i'm going i'm going shouted the sick man at his window lucy came running upstairs i'm going to see knots play villa on the meadows ground he declared you you can't go there are no trains you can't walk nine miles i'm going to see the match he declared rising you know you can't sit down now and be quiet she put her hand on him he shook it off leave me alone leave me alone it's this makes the pain come it's thee i'm going to nottingham to see the football match sit down folks will hear you and what will they think come off of me come off it's her it's her as does it come off he seized hold of her his little head was bristling with madness and he was strong as a lion oh willie she cried it's her it's her kill her he shouted kill her willie folks will hear you the pain's coming on again i tell you i'll kill her for it he was completely out of his mind she struggled with him to prevent his going to the stairs when she escaped from him he was shouting and raving she beckoned to her neighbour a girl of twenty-four who was cleaning the window across the road ethel mallor was the daughter of a well-to-do check-wayman she ran across in fear to mrs horsepool hearing the man raving people were running out in the street and listening ethel hurried upstairs everything was clean and pretty in the young home willie was staggering round the room after the slowly retreating lucy shouting killer killer mr horsepool cried ethel leaning against the bed white as the sheets and trembling whatever are you saying i tell you it's her fault as the pain comes on i tell you it is kill her kill her kill mrs horsepool cried the trembling girl why you're ever so fond of her you know you are the pain i have such a lot of pain i want to kill her he was subsiding when he sat down his wife collapsed in a chair weeping noiselessly the tears ran down ethel's face he sat staring out of the window then the old hurt look came on his face "'What have I been saying?' he asked, looking piteously at his wife. "'What?' said Ethel. "'You've been carrying on something awful, saying, "'Kill her, kill her!' "'Have I, Lucy?' he faltered. "'You didn't know what you were saying,' said his young wife gently, but coldly. His face puckered up. He bit his lip, then broke into tears, sobbing uncontrollably with his face to the window. 
There was no sound in the room but of three people crying bitterly, breath caught in sobs. Suddenly Lucy put away her tears and went over to him. "'You didn't know what you was saying, Willie. I know you didn't. I knew you didn't all the time. It doesn't matter, Willie. Only don't do it again.' In a little while, when they were calmer, she went downstairs with Ethel. "'See if anybody is looking in the street,' she said. Ethel went into the parlour and peeped through the curtains. "'Aye,' she said, "'you may back your life Lena and Mrs. Severn'll be out gorping, and that clat-fartin' Mrs. Alsop. "'Oh, I hope they haven't heard anything. If it gets about as he's out of his mind, they'll stop his compensation. I know they will.' "'They'd never stop his compensation for that,' protested Ethel. "'Well, they have been stopping some. It'll not get about. I shall tell nobody.' Oh, but if it does, whatever shall we do? End of a sick collier.